Hi, my name is Anya Carey, and my definition of relentless is having the courage to always take that step forward. Welcome to the Relentless Podcast, everybody. We are so excited about this episode where Enyana Okeri is our guest from a immigrant from Nigeria at eight years old, moving to Canada, all the way to the COO position of the Edmonton Police Service. His story and his journey is incredible. We hope you enjoy. E is what I call him, really because I have a hard time pronouncing his first name. Um, so E. Okeri. Uh, the COO, which is a chief offer, chief operating officer. Cheap works too. What's yeah? I'm terrible <laughs> at words. Why do I? Ha- why am I doing podcasts? E. Terrible at words. Uh, with the Edmonton Police Service. E. How does one say your first name? Enyena. Enyena. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. You I'll got call it. you E. You could say Tchaikovsky, right? Yeah. No. Okay, then you know no, we're all right. right. <laughs> no, you can call me K. <laughs> yeah, no one, no one really. No, I got Kyle. Kyle. I got Kyle. Yeah, I don't have. I'm not cool. <laughs> like it is cool to just be called E. Oh, it's a, it's a share level of uh, gravitas to be able to go cool. by first one name or one letter. <laughs> it's cool. Like it's it's like Bono. Yeah, exactly. Madonna, mm-hmm. Prince, Share. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anyways, it's so good to have you here, my friend. We are going to talk about a lot of things today. Um, we're going to talk about your life. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about your journey, mm-hmm. um, how you've had to be relentless in different areas of your life to get to where you are today. You are a young man mm-hmm. um, who has a very high up position in a very big organization, and that's due to hard work, talent. It's always due to a little bit of luck, too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about that. Um, but let's get started uh, with your journey even to Canada. Okay. Um, you came, you're, you're, you're an immigrant mm-hmm. to Canada. Yeah. Tell us about that. When did you come here? How old were you? Where do you come from? All that stuff. So I was born in uh, Nigeria and uh, went to my, my mother and father and I have a younger sister. And we came to Canada in 94 to meet my father who was there already. So I would have been at the age of seven. And my father is finishing up his uh, PhD at the University of Guelph and immigrating at that age. I mean, that's when you start to really kind of have memories and can you, become a little more cognizant. So we land in Toronto at uh, Pearson and it's August of 94 and I'm freezing. Uh, and <laughs> I'm so I'm just acclimatizing to that. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm going through a very surreal process of my mom saying, okay, hey, that's your dad. Let's go. And you're seven. So you haven't like seen him since he's gone to go get his doctorate. So like, all right, lady, I'm just going to take your word for it because this man seems happy to meet me and you're right. saying that's what pops. But so we get in the vehicle and uh, we go to Guelph, Ontario. And I think that's, the, well, that's where my story really started in uh, in Canada there. So, you're, so your dad left when you were just like probably a baby or like, what, two, three years old? Yeah, and to finish his doctorate. So you wouldn't even have memories. No. Does he have a doctorate? Animal science uh, in uh, swine husbandry. So In what? Swine husbandry pigs yeah, procreating okay. procreating oh, wow. <laughs> yes there would have been another word i would use yeah, but, yeah so pigs yeah. having sex <laughs> yeah there it is <laughs> awesome yep wow i've yeah. never heard of that and oh. so he made it 
I don't even know what like what he made a career out of that. Like what's what's Yeah, there's a lot of money there's a lot of money in breeding pigs. So wow. he went to University of Guelph, which is a renowned agricultural school here yeah. in Canada. So that's where he did his doctorate. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So you come over, you're seven years old. Yeah. In August and you're freezing. Mm-hmm. Um you're kind of meeting your dad kind of for the first like, kind of in some ways for the first time. Yep. You guys end up in Guelph. What's childhood like for you? Childhood's interesting because I you, you land there, you land in Canada, and you become very aware that you're different. So in Nigeria, I never had an idea of like identity outside of being Nigerian, and really, actually, by my tribe, Igbo, um, you come to Canada, and all of a sudden, you're kind of in a monolith of black. So you're. Doesn't matter if you're Jamaican, doesn't matter if you're Somali, doesn't matter if you're from the United States, African-American or some sort of African. Um, so uh, you're just now black and you're now navigating through that. So you have to understand that perspective when you're a child. So coming from the country that I was, though, it was colonized by um, uh, the UK. I had some semblance of the English language, but there were so still some things that I would stumble through. So they plopped me into um, English as a second language. And uh, this is where I really knew that I was different because like, as I would leave to go to ESL, all the little rude little kids would tease me as you say, you know, Baba, black sheep, have you any wool? And someone would sing it as I was leaving to um, to to go try to master the language so I could communicate with them better and really so I could read to learn at that age. And that stuck in me, well, probably to this day in terms of like, I, I am going to learn this language and it, I hope it's reflective in my vernacular. I mean, but just to ensure that there's no one who's going to be able to speak to me that way regarding um, their view of my intelligence and how I communicate. Right. You're, well, you, you, you've already used three words that I don't understand. <laughs> you know, uh, I, don't know if this, I don't know if this is a controversial thing to say. I, don't, I have no idea. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, uh, uh, I'm a white, so white I'm pink. Um, from St. Albert, Alberta, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, truthfully, and it's not that we grew up with money, but a very affluent area. And, um, the, uh, the idea of the black experience Mm -hmm. in Canada, truthfully, when I was growing up in in the, we'll call it the eighties. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was born in in the mid seventies, early mid seventies. I think because of the way America is, mm-hmm. everyone just assumes in Canada, oh, it's not so bad, <laughs> because of what we see down south, mm-hmm. which is, is just amplified due to population, all, the, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, but it is that bad. And as a young guy, you, you, I mean, you weren't experiencing this as a, you know, whatever, a teenager, 21 year. This is seven, eight, nine years old. In the schools, in the classrooms. In the classrooms. Yeah. Um, that just must have been so hard. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't great. Um, I think I was fortunate that I had a mother that uh, was very demanding still of, hey, you, you're going to have to figure this out. Like, this is the world that you're going to be living in. So that really sobering dose of reality um, 
actually helped as a child that like okay this is what it's what it's going to be we don't have the kind of the familial infrastructure of my grandparents were here or my grand my great grandparents had this lineage and like you understand how to navigate the system we didn't know all that you didn't so have that history didn't have that history and Those teachers didn't have anything like that so even for coming from the country that we came to even understanding what social supports were out there we didn't know about that because that wasn't back home so it really just grounded you in the reality of you're going to have to achieve whatever like whatever you want in your future you're going to have to achieve it and there's something actually freeing about that because there's no you're just waiting for things to kind of work out if you know it's not going to work out like that then you you got to grind so that didn't make it any easier it but at least I knew what the path forward was because there was only kind of one path. But uh, in growing up, though, when it came to kind of internalized identity, from being teased about kind of mastery of English language to um, growing up in from Guelph to moving to Saskatchewan, where you're still a, a minority in the very real sense that not only it might be like, I don't want to say overt racism, that's that that happened but the the things that actually you notice more is not seeing people who look like you in positions of prestige within society and from there i only grew i grew up thinking okay well i just got to be an athlete because that's what i see on tv and that's what like i see i can be as opposed to um president or prime minister or lawyer doctor and ceo uh, CEO, yeah ceo now in terms of lawyer doctor that's really all my parents ever told me i should be because that's the safest path to sustainability and that's what every nigerian parent wants their their child to be but it was um growing up in canada at that time and maybe it's different from if someone is to immigrate now because you're able to see i think we've moved as a culture that you're able to see people in prominent positions that i just wasn't seeing in ontario in the 90s or saskatchewan in the 2000s does that make sense i I, it does make sense and and i think that some things have have moved forward have shifted but i i know even in the work that we do at you can use services like we we do deal with new canadians Mm -hmm. and um what you talked about in regards to navigating even the support systems Mm -hmm. That hasn't changed, right? A lot of these folks are showing up and and they don't know. It's just so different, yes. Right now, it is getting better. There's 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 organizations in this in this where we live in our city, mm-hmm. and I'm sure across uh, this country that that are definitely helping people access different things much better than they used to. But mm-hmm. it's still problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, you go into junior high, high school. Now you're in Saskatchewan. How old were you when you moved to Saskatchewan? Uh, I would have been 12. 12. Yeah. That's, that's a tough age to all of a sudden you're in Saskatchewan. Yeah, <laughs> Talk about another culture shock. Bro, I looked around. Like We used to go to Toronto to see family on the weekends. And we get to Regina. And I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, all right, this is what it is. Yeah. Yeah, this is a different part of Canada. Completely different part of Canada. Which makes Canada pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. So we have all these different parts, but again, another culture shock. 12 years old, you start going to junior high, middle school, whatever mm-hmm. they call it there. Mm-hmm. Um, you start getting into athletics. Yeah. What was what was your sports? Uh, it would have been track and field was my primary sport, and I loved basketball as well. But yeah. when it came to like high high level compete, competing, it was sprinting. Okay. Yeah. So okay. for those in the YouTube audience, believe like a hundred pounds ago, 
um, I used to, I used to be a sprinter. Yeah. And a hundred pounds ago, I wasn't, (laughs) I still wasn't. (laughs) You know what I did? Uh, I did the ball throw. Yeah, I <laughs> the shot put five. No, not oh. even the shot put. The ball, oh, the throw. ball. <laughs> take a softball and you throw it. That was what? my yeah. That was my track <laughs> star exposure. Yeah. I was good though. Yeah, you were, really or you would just yeah. chuck it that thing. I probably got like second or third place. Like, yeah, <laughs> I was one of the bigger kids, yeah. but I you know yeah. Oh yeah, those are my track days, the glory days of the ball throw. <laughs> Um, I think I did try shot put though in junior high, but this wasn't very good at it. Um, so when did you, were you good in school? Yes and no. So I understood the concepts quite well and I could do well in exams, but the way it was structured for what my brain was like then, uh, it, I could do well in exams and terribly on bringing, handing in homework Mm. Because for me, I'm like, okay, I get this. So I'd rather just do other things. Like if the point is for me to understand, you could see that in an examination as opposed to just these perpetual check-ins and really just the institutionalization of just get used to turning stuff in. It's the opposite of many young people. Many young people, like they'll turn their stuff, but they're terrible test takers. Ah. But you're the opposite. No, because I was great memory for cramming and understanding things in a deadline right and all that's really functionally done for me is remember who won the super bowl in 2004 (laughs) and who won the super bowl mvp and like my wife said why can't you apply this to anything functional so one day someone's gonna have gun to your head uh, who won the 2003 mvp and i'll be able to we'll be walking free (laughs) i'm weird with dates yeah i can remember dates and like i got buddies and my wife and other people are like how do you remember remember that i'm like mm-hmm. i don't know but I, yet i don't remember what i did this morning yeah so so you're going through junior high you're going through high school mm-hmm. what were your aspirations are you are you you're, you said you're still experiencing some of this racism you're mm-hmm. still experiencing this but what are your aspirations are you are career-wise what are you looking at oh i wasn't thinking about anything like that so i was a high level track and field athlete at uh in high school so uh competed nationally and for me the only thing that made sense was to go into the united states in college there to compete and it wasn't an aspiration when it came for education or anything like that i think right at that time and i think like every 16 17 year old thinks about this it was really about i was able to achieve this and this is a status marker so for any canadian kid in high school if you're doing high level sports unless it's hockey that you're going to be doing um your your triple a and then get drafted to the dub in um, uh, at at an early age it's really can you go to a bigger market and uh, compete so i started to get offers and looks at that uh time and but I wasn't really thinking about what I wanted to study. I wasn't really thinking about anything. It was except, all about sport. It was just sport. Yeah. It was sport to me was the great equalizer in a way that there was something objective that you could not take away from me. Right. So whether it you came from a rich family or you came from a poor family, you came from a uh, two-parent nuclear or you came from a... a situation that isn't that didn't matter what color your skin was didn't matter what religion you were nothing you got to get between those lines and we race or we're playing basketball and you just got a ball and there was something so beautiful about that in terms of that meritocracy because everywhere else things were kind of subjective but what i really liked about track especially is 
the time is the time. I get in there and I run and that's what you measure me against. So I'm able to know internally, internally um, where I stand, what I need to do if I'm living up to expectations. That really, the, the, that having that foundation in sport, while it was a benefit in moving into the professional world, the, the objectivity that sports provided was actually a detriment because you get into the rest of the world, whether it be high school or just social dynamics, that becomes a little more nebulous. There's no objective way of, okay, I'm a good employee or I'm, uh, I, I'm an in-status person or out-status person or whatever that looks like, while sports used to provide that. So that was kind of a safety for me in terms of I know I can achieve and I can earn this. Yeah. I love how you called it the great equalizer. I think that's yeah. cool, man. Uh, you've also added two more words that I didn't understand. So your ESL <laughs> teacher was fantastic. <laughs> really gifted ESL teacher. Um, listen, we're going to take a little break. Mm -hmm. When we come back, I want to get into what you did do in, in university college mm -hmm. and where that's led you to now. And then I want to get into talking about something that you and I have had great conversations about. Um, and that's about vulnerability mm -hmm. as a man. So I look forward to that. Mm -hmm. We will be right back uh, right after this break. The Relentless Podcast is brought to you by You Can Youth Services, which I am very proud to be a part of. You Can Youth Services is an organization that helps young people move out of harm's way and onto a path of economic independence. If you want to learn more about the incredible work that we do with some very vulnerable young people, please go to www.youcan.ca. That's www.youcan.ca. All right, we are back. We are talking to E. E, talk to us about um, now. You're in your university. Where did you, where did you go to university? University of Regina. Okay, yep. cool. And you were doing athletics there. Mm -hmm. And what did you end up taking? So I ended up taking a. It was a double major of political science and sociology. And the path that I wanted to go down was to eventually go to law school because that's what was drilled into my head for my mother. If I'm not going to be a doctor, yeah, you got to be a lawyer. Yeah. yeah. So that was, that was the thing. So, um, a lot of my focus though was on political philosophy and not necessarily, um, like the Westminster system or anything like that or anything even partisan. It was, I liked reading about how other people thought and how their applications or their thoughts um, or their view of the world could be applicable to today's day and age and being able to see that kind of linkage. Like if people are writing in the 1800s, are there things that they saw in human nature and the way the world worked that actually still apply today? And then if so, have we really evolved that far when someone in the 1800s was saying something that's still absolutely relevant or were they just outliers? So that was really my focus through my four years, like really, really um, I honed in on uh, political philosophy. And I thought it was just going to be something that was interesting. And then eventually I just write the LSAT and go to law school and then have to be a real adult boy at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Which which you have become an adult. I want to, I want to affirm that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but that's not the route you went. Mm -hmm. Where'd you go? So I finished uh, after my last year of, uh, uh, actually, no, in my last year of university, I actually got a job at the legislature in uh, Saskatchewan. So it was a strange time because 
we had a really good track team and I didn't, I, this is going to sound ridiculous, but at this time I was working full time and then taking classes in the evening, but they would also fly me to the different track events kind of across the country. We'd come out to Golden Bear out here uh, to run in the Butter Dome. And then I'd just kind of take the bus back and then go to work the next day. So I kind of got into that just through chance because, like I said, I took political philosophy. So the idea of working at a legislature never really interested me. It never, I never imagined doing that, but it was, I'm 22 and I need a job. And if I'm not going to law school right away, I'm going to be a 22 year old dude with a political science degree. Like right. I, I'll be working at Earl's until I figure something out. Yeah. So I took the job and it was just a, just a fire hose of different experiences that I don't know if I was capable of kind of understanding what was happening, but I just had to start navigating it. I was terrible, <laughs> flat out terrible. And I was just getting used to showing up to a place on time. Right. Um, and you have a very fast paced moving uh, government and just like the real world and you're just watching things blur. And on top of that, like I said, I focused on philosophy, but no one's going to hear want to hear about the the machinations of a 22 year old and kind of what you know what Hegel would have thought about this. No, we need to get this budget passed. Right. Like, shut up and <laughs> provide and me the research. Yeah, do yeah. your job. Yeah. Yeah. From there, because you ended up working within the government in Saskatchewan mm -hmm. for a long time. Mm -hmm. Well, I say a long time. You're still a young guy. Yeah. Let's fast forward a bit. You end up being chief of staff. Yes. Talk to me about this. What, how, how did this all come about? So thankfully, I didn't get fired in my first year while trying to figure out how to sh use a fob. And over <laughs> the next three years, I started getting promoted through um, that particular office. Which means you weren't as shitty as your job as <laughs> you think you were. Yeah, well, I'm, you'll find out I'm my worst critic. <laughs> But um, eventually, I moved from that office. One day, they called me into Premier's office and said, we'd like you to be chief of staff to the Minister of Corrections and Policing. And I'm like, I don't know what any of that means, but oh, let me see if I can fail upwards. So I said, sure. Um, right away, now I'm getting used to working with only one minister, not a whole bunch of different MLAs, and figuring out the apparatus of working with the ministry which is the non-elected side, the bureaucratic side, yeah. and how we work together to move, well, A, to provide proper governance for um, the people of Saskatchewan, but move things together in a kind of a cohesive, effective manner. So that was a very eye-opening experience because now, once again, I'm 26, 27 at this time, and I'm now having to provide direction people in their 50s who've lived a very full and successful life and you understand that and I, I i'm so grateful for having that opportunity because not only do you have an opportunity to serve but you understand how to navigate power and what that actually means because you might have some directive power that i could tell a deputy minister this is the direction that we're going 
But at the same time, like we really need to figure out kind of consent and what this looks like that we can work together and do this as partnership because that very authoritative part, uh, power and some people do use that is very fleeting because there's something called an election every four right. years or you serve at the pleasure of a, a premier. So you could be very high and mighty one day and out on the street Gone the other. Next. So if your measure of success is how effective you can, you can be to get that agenda, I learned right away, we got to work together regardless of what my title has said, which has actually served me very well as I continue to move through it, um, move through different chief of staff portfolios and even in the one that I'm, the, the role that I'm in right now, that just working together in partnership is really the only way that I'm going to be able to um, really get anything done. Yeah, yeah, partnership, collaboration, yeah. relationship building yes. is so important. So as a young guy, you're, you're navigating that. You're learning the systems, if you will. Yep. Um, you're learning how to make those things happen. Then you met, if I, if it's okay if I bring yeah, up, yeah. Uh, Chief Dale McPhee. Mm -hmm. So EPS Chief Dale McPhee, yes. who at the time was... Deputy minister. Deputy minister in Saskatchewan. Yes, yes, sir. He brought, did he, how did he, he brought you on as his chief of staff? What, uh, what happened? So that first chief of staff gig that uh, we had, that I had, sorry, he was recently made deputy minister of the uh, Ministry of Corrections and Policing and then ultimately also lead uh, deputy for a transformational change for the government. He had just retired from being a police chief in PA. And so he was making the changes and driving what he wanted to this do. This is Dale McPhee. Yeah, Dale yeah. McPhee, yep, in the government. So it was really just... And we got off to a rocky start, but it was really just figuring out how we kind of work together. And there was a lot of phone calls and some elevated voices. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that man led the league in penalty minutes in the uh, WHL because I'm like, I might roll this guy. Like this, 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 if my career is going up in flames. At least get a lick. And, but uh, we, we were able to figure it out. And then all of a sudden, once it clicked, now we're able to i'm able to help drive things on the kind of the political end and he was able to kind of make that happen on the bureaucratic side and eventually after i had a couple more different portfolios because cabinet shuffles happen and yeah. i moved to economy and um it, there's it's a great portfolio but there was a lot of things that he wanted to get done on the transformational change agenda that said need someone who can kind of work in both worlds so that's why uh he pulled me over to work in the ministry as the um executive director of strategic initiatives and evaluation to be able to kind of lead a team that can get big projects across the line with elected officials through kind of the treasury board and cabinet process but also provide perspective of what they may be thinking to my colleagues within the ministry so that we don't have to go through things six times. We can try to get it done right the first right, time. Right. Throughout this journey up to this point, mm -hmm. you've had to work hard. You've yeah. had to figure stuff out. Mm -hmm. You're probably dealing with, uh, is ageism? Oh, yes. Right? <laughs> yes. Was there still racism going on with you in your life? Or had that subsided a bit because of now your status? Or was it still there? It wasn't overt as overt. Like, I was so blessed to grow up in Saskatchewan, to be honest. Like, great salt of the earth people. And not many places that in Canada that someone like me who immigrated here would have opportunities to do a lot of the things that um, I did. So, like, internally grateful, eternally grateful for that. The, the thing with the racism and things that you experience is that 
I can be in a suit right now, and I'm now of a place that people will assume that I do something white collar. Sure. But you don't wear, I don't wear the suit all the time. So in any other time outside of this, I default once I'm out of this costume or um, attire, I default to whatever you may believe that you see when you, you, you think when you see someone who looks like me. So while growing up in Saskatchewan and especially working in like my twenties, if I wasn't in a suit, I was a rough rider. It was one right. or two things. Like it was either I was you you okay, you work in an office somewhere, or if I'm in sweatpants and a t shirt and trying to go out for lunch, I'm I'm yeah. a rider and you're a football player. I'm a football player. Because if if you're just listening and you're not watching, he is a, a he's fit. <laughs> he's fit. Uh, he's a large fellow who's fit. When we hugged when you got here, I was like, Wow. Like when you hugged, you were like, "Wow, Kyle's squishy." And when I hugged you, I was like, "Wow, he's really fit and firm." Anyways, um, you had to go through that in your career, plus the ageism thing. Because yeah. as a young guy, I can only imagine a twenty-six-year-old E, yeah. chief of staff, yeah. kicking ass, taking names, and people are like, "Who the are you, man?" Yeah, right. Yeah, I learned. But bring the relentless aspect into it. You probably had to really. Prove yourself in a lot of ways, and I'm sure many times in the evenings, doubting yourself because mm-hmm. that's what we do as humans. Mm-hmm. But you just kept going, brother. Like this, this is a theme throughout life. My at least mine. Sorry, I came here, and you you realize that you're not of this world, and so you have to figure out mechanisms or paths to to survive. So for me, survival was learning very much about Canadian culture, learning very much about kind of the people who were around me so that I would be able to assimilate more than anything. And that served a utility um, through schooling and into the workplace. And it wasn't until a bit later that I thought that okay, maybe assimilation goes too far because you learn, I learned so much at the expense of kind of development of myself, of who I am, um, why do I value my culture? Why do I value my identity? So a lot of my life recently has been um, finding that balance. But where that comes into work is that if you always know or feel like you're an outsider, regardless of what your position says, then I think I come to things humbly in the sense that, okay, there is a utility and you have 50 years or 30 years experience in doing this, 50 years experience in life. I don't have that. So what can I learn from you? And there's some things in perspective that I'm going to be able to bring that you can learn from me. And I think when you come to things, any kind of relationship like that, people by and large are going to be more receptive to having those kinds of conversations and then thinking about the task at hand as opposed to spending time trying to get, whether it be upper hand, and it could be in a a romantic relationship or a work relationship, like all that extra time is waste as opposed to looking at what that task at hand is and how we can mutually benefit from um, working together. You're a very smart guy, E, but you are. You're smart. You're articulate. Um, you're thoughtful. Uh, this is why I love having conversations with you. Um, Dale McPhee mm-hmm. comes to Edmonton as the chief of police. Mm-hmm. 
And because of him knowing you way better than I do, and at the time way better than I do, saw all those things that I just said and went, E, uh, are you and Michelle willing to come to Edmonton? Because uh, we're going to go make some change. Mm-hmm. Do you want to come help me? Mm-hmm. You said yes. I said no at first. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I, – I, I never thought about working in municipal policing. So – what I had, the capital that I had built was now being able to navigate government and I understand. And there was a, it's it's an incredible feeling to have your feet under you that, okay, you know what, I'm comfortable in this place, but that's exactly what I ended up being comfortable. And what he spoke about was a lot of the changes that we wanted to make while we were in the government using um, policing or working within policing as a vehicle to be able to drive transformational change. And that challenge though did excite me so after he convinced my wife and like we we spoke more about it very 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 grateful to be able to come over to edmonton when i came here um my original portfolio i uh, when we first met was the uh, executive director of the value and impact division so that is it's it's a civilian position equivalent of a superintendent at the service but the focus of the portfolio is equity and inclusion and community relations, as well as marrying that with building the organization's strategy, performance, evaluation. And that was a perfect gig in terms of my wheelhouse because I wanted to stretch myself, especially on that strategic side, but also it was a challenge coming in as a newcomer uh, in policing and in a community and trying to find people to connect with uh, in terms of driving speaking about the services new mission vision and what we wanted to do with community a lot of cold calls of of like who are you okay meet me in this neighborhood where i've been here for six months i don't know that neighborhood i'm coming from regina like (laughs) pin me like (laughs) that being said you guys have been here for three and a half years yes i think Mm -hmm. coming up on four i guess this spring Mm um listen uh, and i'm not just saying this to say it uh, I think you guys are awesome. I think that the change that has been brought into EPS on many levels is is impressive. But for you personally, uh, you're in this new role uh, a year after you're here, not even COVID hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was actually um, something more significant that that happened mm-hmm. whenever we start talking about defund the police. Mm-hmm. Um Talk about the George Floyd stuff. Talk about what that means to you. Mm -hmm. And through your lens, Mm -hmm. (laughs) how unique is it to me, your lens as a black man Mm -hmm. and your lens as police? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was... So we're just fresh in COVID. Um, you just look online, everyone is at home. So the, 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 the ground was ripe. Like uh, the environment was ripe for, um, something like this. And I see the video and I'm just gutted. And I, I, I just, I don't understand it. Like I just, I, I actually just couldn't comprehend the nine minutes. And the first thing that I thought about, it was like, okay, this is, this is going to be a thing. And now I'm thinking about this is going to be a thing for the Minneapolis Police Service. 
but then watching the rallies, watching the protests, and watching it make it all the way up here to to uh, Edmonton and the numbers that people wanted to be part of that conversation made me think about, okay, well, first of all, you got to do a gut check of, are you on the right side of history in your mind? And like, if I look back 30 years from now, am I going to be proud of where I'm sitting and what I'm doing? And once I go through that process, it was full speed ahead in terms of, okay, the people have spoken, they're looking for um, change. I'm very, very happy and blessed that we are, I'm working in a service that is also looking to drive that change and wanting to work a community and doing it. How do we take that step? What I didn't quite account for in my mind was going to be the, believe it or not, the emotional labor that it was going to take to be myself trying to reach out to people in COVID, which by the way, is a time that we were all separated and yeah, there's no technological solution or there's no, there's no way zoom is not a reasonable facsimile for a face-to-face conversation like we're having right now. There's a lack of connection. There's a lack of connection. And now I'm trying to talk to you and other leaders about something that is so inherently personal and so intense, intensely personal doing that to zoom is very hard so what that ended up being was a lot of day and night connection and day and night conversation and distance walk distance meetings while everything was still at a fever pitch because by and large what the few who wanted to defund were saying is just continue to drive how do we how do we continue to keep the foot on the gas pedal meanwhile for me i'm like well I'm trying to think about what the best solution would be, like what the end game is when it comes to providing services for people who are marginalized, for people who are vulnerable, and some of those people who look like me. But I'm in a place that I'm looked at as an agent of the enemy, which really I'm just trying to drive the change that I believe in and my colleagues and people in the service believe in that this is going to be the best thing that we can do as a society to move forward together. And I don't think for a lot of those two years that there was a lot of interest from the very, very loud folks in moving forward to a solution that wasn't based on who has power, but a solution that was based on what was going to be the best effective like results actually matter slogans are one thing but outcomes and lives changing like you do every day uh with your team at you can that is actually what matters and if we're not looking to see that then for me i i don't want a historic opportunity to be missed so those were a lot of the tensions that kind of battling like focusing on the mission at hand and doing it there was no days off day night monday to sunday anyone who wanted to talk we would meet anyone who wanted to propose solutions and we met some beautiful people who proposed some solutions that we're doing now to this day that came from that opportunity and came from our commitment to action which was engaging with um, a lot of these um, equity serving organizations but that definitely did take a toll would have been exhausting yeah would have been exhausting i know that um through your leadership and, and Dale's, uh, a couple other folks, you know, we can mention Scott Jones, yeah. right? Some of these folks over at EPS that we've uh, built great relationship yeah. with. Anna Sinclair. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Anna, 
Sinclair. I mean, it's it's these Michelle Fillion, like yeah. just all these folks that I've I've been so fortunate to work closely with. But one thing that I don't think the Edmonton community fully understands, or I would say a lot of the Edmonton community doesn't understand, I would say probably a lot of communities in general, is that police services, mm-hmm. um, one, it's not a police force, mm-hmm. it's police service. Important distinction. Which I think is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, if, we'll back up for a second and, I'll, and then I'll pump you guys' tires for what you do with us. I've worked with so many young people throughout the years. So like, I don't know what the percentage is. It's a, it's a high, high 90% percentage of the young people I, we work with that are vulnerable, mm-hmm. at risk, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call them. They hate cops. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Most of their experiences with police have not been positive. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean it's because they got in trouble and the cops were there to arrest them. Quite often it's because when they were young, uh, maybe they were taken out of their house because mom and dad were not able to mm-hmm. and police were involved or police were there. And so their first thoughts of police are, you took me, even though it wasn't the police's fault, it was mom and dad, so all these things. And I've had so many young people over the years say, oh, I hate cops. And I go, why? And they go, because they're all assholes. And I go, oh, it's okay. I said, just so you know, I know a lot of cops that aren't. Mm-hmm. Most cops I know are not. And just so you know, there's some youth out there that are assholes too, <laughs> you know, and they kind of look at me like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And what we've always tried to do within our organization, and we don't need to go down this path. You and I could literally talk for an hour about <laughs> this, um, is this whole humanization, mm-hmm. right? Police and our young people. Let's get them sitting in a circle, talking, humanizing one another, building relationship, getting to know one another. And when all the defund the police stuff became heavy, heavy, heavy. Which is still out there. Mm-hmm. There's no question about it. Although I do, I hope anyways, I want to say this with hope, not as an actual fact, but as hope, is that people are starting to educate themselves more on what that actually means. Mm-hmm. Um, people don't get that Edmonton Police Services actually spends a lot of money on community partnerships. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, well, let me just tell you that I think you guys need to do a better job of tooting your own horn or yelling it from the rooftops, whatever that is, mm-hmm. because we're one of those benefactors. You guys help us. You support two of our youth workers mm-hmm. um, that work with some of the the most vulnerable, toughest, hardcore young people in our community, where we only take referrals from EPS, and we are doing incredibly good work in partnership with EPS, working um, with some of your civilian people, with lots of the constables of members, and it's awesome. But I don't think the community gets all that. And I just wanted to say that. We don't need to get into it big time because, again, we can talk. But I think the community needs to understand that more. I, I, I would agree. And we do it because we are you folks are partners. And we have a very that that's what community safety means like it doesn't have to be a cop doing x y and z you guys are very proficient in working with these youth that we know we don't want them going down the right the wrong path how do we get them to a job how do we get them stabilized that's part of building a safe community and doing it with partners who are actually in the tent and want to do the hard work and um want to be there through the good times and the bad that's really what's going to make sustainable change within um our city but on kind of tooting our own horn, it is an intensely, like it's against the culture. Mm-hmm. 
And that's something, especially me coming from government, where you got to do announcements. You got to put yeah. things out for so that people know what it is that you're doing. Um, coming into policing, I'm like, you guys are, you, this is, you're incredible people. So, like, even with our 180 teams that are working with some of your folks and our Y50 teams, there's our top 50 working with your folks, the amount of care that those officers and civilians care about these youth, which it's incredible in some respect have done some pretty horrific things and they're still seeing them like these are kids that we want to get on the straight and narrow these kids who now have my cell phone that i will be the dependent or the dependable adult for these these youth it's it's it saddens me because we we spent two years having a conversation about um a profession throwing uh, a profession that was just overtly racist or did not care but like i sit in these meetings so i'm like I hear the names and I know the people that we're talking about and I see the frustration when it comes to from these officers of I want to get this person into this housing. I want to get this kid into this treatment. What can we do? Who do I need to call so that nothing happens to this youth and they have an opportunity to move forward? And those are the people who live in our city and some in St. Albert. Um, Great place to live that are trying to make a real difference in their community and we do need to do a better job and that's something that i have to take um, ownership of of communicating about that because i do believe edmontonians would feel will continue to feel well served if they know just the quality of individuals who are looking after our actual future which is these youth at the end of the day every profession i don't care what it is policing doctor lawyer like your mom wanted you to be uh, teachers, firefighters, I don't care, uh, custodians, I don't care what it is. Um, there's always some bad apples. There's always. It's going to happen no matter what. Youth workers, mm-hmm. all this type of stuff. And it's just sad to me that that's if some one bad thing happens and a thousand great things happen, it's the bad thing that gets focused on. And, um, and I'm talking, I'm not like, listen. The George Floyd. I'm not talking about that. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, I, I I I get why it's tough for you guys to to toot your horns and to, to right because it is culturally it's like well it's not really Just what shut I'm up and do your to job do. And, exactly yeah yep. I'm here to uh, pump your tires and it's appreciated the team appreciates you guys our young people that we work with um, we've seen some really cool success stories and it doesn't work with all of them we've actually seen some really bad stuff too because of of these young people where they come from um what they're involved in who they're involved with but um we're gonna we gotta wrap up sooner than later because you and i are we've been talking a while yeah um which is great and i honestly think you and i could probably spend hours talking Mm -hmm. i do want to talk to you about something though um in regards to you and i've had this a, a, a small conversation unfortunately this can't be super long but the relentless pursuit of vulnerability mm-hmm. and you and I are, are guys um, you're like I said, you're buffed and you're fit and you're quite manly and you've got that voice. It's just, <laughs> I actually want you to record things so I can, I think that it would be soothing for me to fall asleep. You've got that unbelievable voice. I'm, I'm just big and fat and burly, but some would say I look manly, which I'm not at all. <laughs> But I think that both of us are vulnerable guys. Mm-hmm. Both of us are willing to talk about things that, that maybe a lot of guys. And now what's happening is if they have analytics on this, every guy listening is like, oh, <laughs> screw this. Oh, this shit. 
But talk to me about kind of what your thoughts are on on vulnerability. I think it's been the key to my success in the professional sphere. I think it's been the key to success in a relationship. I think as human beings, we can sense authenticity. And it takes real courage to be able to say, this is how I'm feeling. This is, I'm, I feel like an imposter in my position or I'm a, it's not even just being vulnerable about kind of the things you're scared about, but just open, mm. just being open. And the only way to actually have genuine relationships is through vulnerability. So whether it be with your colleagues and you having to have tough conversations, if they know you and they know your spirit and they know you're not faking it, people smell fakes. They do. Yep. And doing that and purporting yourself to be something that you're not, that's too, that's bad for two reasons. A, you're not going to be effective because people see right through you. B, there's real harm that you do to yourself because you don't get to live authentically. You're expending energy to purport yourself to be what you believe that whatever position you're in or whether it be professionally or personally, that's how you should act as opposed to getting to live a beautiful life of being who you are. And you speak about like the, the I, I work out a lot and I like it for mental health, but for a long time it was also a shield. I wanted to put on a lot of muscle and look a certain way so that I had the freedom to be vulnerable and be myself because I can speak about if I want to enjoy baking. I do a lot of the cooking at home uh, when we do it. Like these are things that I just started watching Sex in the City. <laughs> Amazing show. There you go. Amazing show. Really well written. And all of those women are problems. Yeah. Like I, I, I felt for that guy. I'm only in season one. But. To be able to say that and not have someone think that, you know, like, no, oh, I'm going to beat you up or I'm going to call you. Uh, you wanted to look buffed and big so that that was a protection thing. <laughs> exactly. Of, I want to be able to say that I love to cook. I want to be able to say that uh, I watch sex, whatever. Yeah. But you can't come at me because look at me. And it was a, a shield. And what I hope for is that you don't need that shield, that we can live, that you can just be yourself. I'm here to tell you that you don't. Because look at me, look at look at my body. <laughs> <laughs> I'd take my shirt off right now, but we're filming, and I don't want to have anyone never watch again. I don't have that protection. Mm -hmm. I think that's very interesting that you did that, though. Mm -hmm. You know, um, when did that change for you? When did you realize, you know what? No, just be authentic, fully authentic. Mm -hmm. You being in good shape and working out—I mean, that's amazing. It's mm -hmm. great. That it was that wasn't the only reason you were doing it, but mm -hmm. there had to come a time, as you've already stated, where it was like, I don't need that as a protection. Mm -hmm. but really, you being authentic is your protection, and and that that is what the switch is. And it it happened professionally actually while I was a chief of staff that I felt enough mastery of kind of what it is that I was doing that I was like, okay, I've done this as being kind of the robot glad hander but what if i just injected a little bit of me right. and just doing that incrementally and there is just some folks in even media that i really admire that were able to speak in a vernacular that was in, in a in a manner that was very natural to them 
but you could never ever question the intelligence. You could never ever question their effectiveness. And I'm like, this looks like a way freer way to live my life. Not that I have to model anything because I think authenticity is something that every human being strives for and wants. So me wanting to speak and live my life in the way that is natural to me, I would not expect that you wouldn't want the same thing or anyone who would be listening to this wouldn't want the same thing. But you don't get to do it until you mo you see someone else model it. Sure. Unless you're, you're, you're really just truly courageous and you did it anyways. It's almost permission-based, like society yeah. permission-based, where we, we're looking for that permission so if we see somebody else do it then we feel comfortable or okay enough to do that mm -hmm. the older i get uh because i'm i'm not gonna say quite a bit older than you but mm -hmm. i think i got a good 15 years close anyways um i'm 49 okay yeah and um i just i just don't care mm -hmm. what people i shouldn't say i don't care what people think I care more about who I am and, mm -hmm. and the way I'm going to present myself. Mm -hmm. And I probably, it was probably 35 to 40, well, maybe 30. I don't know what it was. When I just started realizing I am who I am. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't matter if I'm talking to, you know, when my, when my grandma was alive, when I talked to her, if I was mm -hmm. talking to a government funder, if mm -hmm. I was talking to the COO of Edmonton <laughs> Police Service, if yeah. I was talking, whoever, mm -hmm. I just am who I am. And, I think that that's a cool part of being authentic. Do you remember the first time we met? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so you didn't say a whole lot in that meeting. Uh, I, I threw, you know, I felt very cool that I got to go and meet the chief of police mm -hmm. in his office, mm -hmm. and I heard all these things about Dale, and he's funny, and he's just basically what I heard was he's very authentic, mm -hmm. and part of his auth authenticity is. Mm -hmm. Uh, when it's time to talk business, he's pretty serious, mm -hmm. which I'm the same way, actually, when I talk about my work and, and all that type. But we're sitting in this meeting, and the first five, ten minutes, he's explaining to me because you guys were bringing in, like, a lot of stuff in the very beginning. And yep. so this would have been, I want to say, August. Yep. You guys had come in. He came February, came May. This is in August. And he's explaining all this. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, like, this, this guy's pretty serious. Like, I thought he was a little more fun. Like, I don't know. I don't even know what I said. Mm -hmm. uh, well, actually, I do, but we don't, we don't need it. Uh, I, I made some stupid joke, some stupid comment, and again, for me, I didn't. I because I didn't know you guys. Um, that was authenticity for me. But then I just said, "Well, this is being me." I just said some stupid thing. I think I called my wife hot or something like that. Let, no, let's 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 be real about it. You said that your wife was much better looking than you were, and that yes. essentially you were playing above the rim. Yes, and. What that man said was, oh, I know another guy that you should meet. And that's how we got connected. How, he yeah. called me. He's like, hey, there's someone that you'd get along with. He brought me in. He's like, you said his wife is way better looking. He's like, oh, me too. There you yeah, go. And that's how we connected. And that's how it was. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I just, again, I think that that is with Dale and with, with you in particular. I've spent way more time with you. I think the vulnerability that we've been able to show one another um, listen, we've been in very professional meetings together, mm -hmm. and yet you're the same guy. I love that. Um, there's another guy, Scott Jones, who yeah. we've mentioned earlier. Um, first time I met him, I was like, this dude is awesome mm -hmm. because it's just he is who he is. You are who you are, and that to me is actually really vulnerable. Mm -hmm. When people hear vulnerability, I think they think, oh, you're going to share your whole life story. 
we're going to cry together. We're going to hold hands. We're going to sing Kumbaya. That's not what it is to me. Mm -hmm. What it is is what you said, authenticity. Mm -hmm. That's being vulnerable, Mm -hmm. being open to letting who you are shine through. And that doesn't mean it's just constant open book. You're going to know every single thing about me, Mm -hmm. but who you are is who you are. Mm -hmm. And I respect that. I really do. E, you, you've lived quite a life for, because how old are you? 35. 35. Uh, for a 35-year-old, I can only imagine what you're going to do in the next 35. I'm excited to watch it. I know that I'll be uh, a little part of it because you and I are, are partners in our community, which mm-hmm. I'm very proud of that. I thank you so much. Oh, there's one other thing I was going to mention. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going to have your wife on our podcast as well. Mm-hmm. She's got a very unique story. Uh, you and her, mm-hmm. listen, you've accomplished a lot of things that I have not accomplished <laughs> in life. Um, uh, there were, I think, 11 words that you said today that I don't understand. But but you and her in 2021, was mm-hmm. it 2021? 2020 or 2021. Uh, yeah, yeah, one of those years, were nominated and then oh. received the top 40 under 40 yeah. in Edmonton, which is so cool. Yeah. That's hip. That's happening. Yeah. I saw you guys' pictures in there. They're very glamorous. <laughs> yeah, that, that 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 was wild. Uh, like I was so stoked that she won it. I was very, I'm not a, uh, very surprised that I did. But it that was to be able to do that together was one of the coolest professional kind of life experiences. I was going to say, I don't think that. They, uh, do you think that they've had a married couple in there before? I You'd have to do a little research on that. Yeah, you? I'm not sure. Man, I think it's very cool and. Also annoying to me because I've never, I was never uh, nominated for that <laughs> when I was under forty, and I thought I was doing some good community worky, like really, and 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 I, I uh, your friends whatever. are haters. That's that's yeah, what they it just goes. don't care. Yeah. They were like, whatever. <laughs> they don't love you like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you haven't done enough. Is what they thought. And maybe back then I hadn't. Right. Maybe back then I hadn't. But. Whatever, maybe top 50, under 50. I don't even know if that award exists, but I'm going to just create it in a fake online <laughs> Twitter poll. We'll make it happen. E, we got to jam out. Um, we, we, we talked about quotes. Mm-hmm. Do you have, do you have a, a quote that you like? I do. It's a bit longer, but I'm, I'm going to okay. read it. That's okay. Um, and it is the man in the arena. And I think about this a lot especially over these last three years in public life. So it's by Roosevelt and it goes like this. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how strong the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and by sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst if he fails at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat and i think about that a lot especially when i think about whether it be imposter syndrome or this things are really really hard at work and you you see the criticism you hear it I would rather be in the arena trying to do something. I'd rather be in the arena trying to make a positive change than to not have tried at all and do the easy things of point fingers. So when it comes to being relentless or it comes to the work that we do, I think we're very aligned in that way. And that's, that's, that's why I chose that quote. 
I think it's amazing. It makes me think of a gladiator, <laughs> right? In a really cool way. Mm-hmm. And you know what? In lots of ways, you are a gladiator. You are in the arena. Sounds to me like you always have been. And it's a place that you're comfortable in. Uh, you're good there. And you are bringing change. Um, I thank you for being on our podcast. Uh, where can we find you on social media? <laughs> so uh, my Twitter is just my full name, and you know, Carrie. And uh, on Instagram, uh, it is Cognac and Curls because I love Hennessy and I love lifting weights, and that's really what it is. <laughs> nice, nice. Can you? Uh, you say, I want you to say that. No, I won't. I was going to say in a sultry voice. <laughs> So, so, do you remember the ladies' man? The yes. <laughs> yeah, the Kavasi. <laughs> Listen, Very we're going to end movie. there. Uh, All right. I appreciate E. I appreciate your time. Um, you're a good dude. Uh, keep going, and and thank you so much for being relentless in our community. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for what you do, man. 